This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. In this episode, we continue the Conversations with Publishers series, and my guest is Margot Irvin, who is an editor at Stanford University Press, where she's been commissioning history and Jewish studies for the past five years. After studying comparative literature, Margot was an intern at Pharaoh Strauss and Giroux, and then spent five years as an editor at Routledge. Stanford published its first book in 1892. The idea of publishing was written into the plans for the new university from the outset. By 1939, the press had nearly 400 active titles, a dozen book series and 70 employees. Under Leon Seltzer, press director from 1956, there were landmark publications such as Donald Frame's new translation of the Complete Essays of Montaigne, in 1958, and Roberta Wallstetter's prize-winning Pearl Harbor, Warning and Decision, in 1962. Under Grant Barnes, who took the helm in 1983, there was further expansion into the humanities and literary studies. SUP published prominent theorists such as Jacques Derrida, Hélène Sixou, and Pierre Bourdieu, and works by British sociologist Anthony Giddens, for example. And in the past decade, under Alan Harvey, there's been the launch of a new imprint of short, accessible books, Stanford Briefs, a new trade imprint, Redwood Press, and a Mellon Foundation-funded digital publishing programme. There was also, in 2019, as many listeners will recall, the threatened withdrawal of funding from the press's parent institution. This generated a huge support campaign on behalf of the press and eventually secured a reprieve from the university, though talk of right-sizing the press rumbled on, and similar language has certainly not vanished from discussions of university press publishing in general. We do revisit that moment in this conversation, but rather than rake over the coals in detail, anyone who wants to follow every point in the timeline will find it at save-sup.org. We try to set that period in the press's history in a wider cultural context. The day Margot spoke to me from San Francisco, her most recent tweet read, My window hummingbird feeder just arrived, and I literally cannot remember the last time I was so excited about something. 
with most of us having lived and worked within our own four walls for the best part of a year, that excitement seemed like a good place to start. I think that we are all just so hungry for that kind of human connection that we're all missing so much and, and just working from our own spaces. So, you know, I've been working from my apartment in San Francisco for the past year. And one of the interests that I've also been developing outside of work is learning more about birding. And so I, I noticed hummingbirds outside of my apartment window and I decided to get a, a hummingbird feeder that will stick to the outside of the window so that they will be encouraged to come and visit me while I'm working. My, my window kind of looks out on a garden, and so it'll be nice to have someone keeping me company during my work days. So is it operational yet, or is it still to be fitted? I need to make, I need to make the nectar, so it will probably be going up later today. <laughs> So it's quite, it's quite a, you know, quite a serious business. It's not just like oh, yes. buying some, buying some nuts and putting them in the garden. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you mentioned there, Margot, you've been working from home as so many people mm-hmm. have for the past year. If you were to sort of sum up what that experience feels like one one year on, does it does it sort mm-hmm. of feel like a sort of the, the strange new normal? Has has it sort of normalised? I mean, I I am grateful that I think many of us who work in academic publishing have been able to make a transition to to working remote fairly easily in the sense that you know much of what we do is sending emails is um you know in fact in some ways it's nice to have quiet time for manuscript reading and doing meetings over zoom is fine but i think you do miss those kind of moments of running into someone in the break room and having a spontaneous conversation. You know, we've pivoted all of our events to being online, which actually is something that I think we will probably maintain in some ways after the pandemic is over, because it gives us the opportunity to just reach so many more people. That said, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, at some point, going back to conferences, uh, because I, I think it's so generative to, to get to meet people in person and to develop a relationship that I think also just fosters accountability and, and you know, being able to have those conversations with people about their work and really kind of develop an idea is one of my favorite things about doing acquisitions work. And having a, a meeting over Zoom is a fine substitute for the time being. But I think in the longer term, when we can get back to, to being in person together, it's going to be such a huge relief. Now, I know you began your publishing career at FSG. You were there for a, mm-hmm. a year or so, and then you had five years at Routledge. Uh, mm-hmm. And then five years ago, you moved to Stanford. Having tried those different sorts of publishing, does academic publishing or academic press publishing feel very much like your natural home? Was that was that a fit that you sort of gravitated towards or was it a sort of degree of happenstance about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that when I first started working in publishing, I wasn't even really aware of scholarly publishing as an option. I didn't have a sense really of what it entailed. And um, so my, you know, my first um, out of college place that I was, was FSG. And I was doing an internship there where I had the opportunity to work across a number of different departments. So, you know, I would do one day in publicity, um, you know, one day in the rights and permissions department. And so I kind of got to get a little bit of a sense of the various different jobs within a publishing house. And I think, you know, my, my own sense of a desire to work with books, having that kind of exposure to a big trade house really 
made me understand all of the things that are happening behind the scenes in order to to bring books out to the public. So actually, while I was at FSG, one of the production editors who I worked with occasionally let me know that his partner uh, was looking for an editorial assistant. And so I ended up at, at Routledge, and it was kind of serendipity. I think at that point, I was... I kind of had in the back of my mind that I was going to work for a couple of years and then apply for PhD programs, um, but didn't really have a very clear sense of what exactly it was that I wanted to study. And then finding myself in this world of academic publishing and, and having the opportunity to be in academic spaces and to learn from people who are at the top of their fields, you know, I think that it became evident to me that it was a really good fit in the sense that, you know, I get to be constantly learning about different things without having to, you know, make a commitment <laughs> to a, a specific kind of subject area. No, I, I entirely, I entirely um, empathize with that. That's a, a mindset I'm very familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. being able to to change focus, um, mm-hmm. you know, weekly or, or, or daily. And it was yeah, while absolutely. you were at Rutledge that you began commissioning um, history, I think, and your background had been in, in literature. So tell me about, yes. and now you're, now you're commissioning history at, um, at Stanford. So tell me about sort of entering that field. Again, was that an opening that came up or would, how, did you, how did you sort of end up being a history editor? My my first position as an editorial assistant at Routledge, I was actually working on the media and cultural studies list. And uh, that was actually a real education because it was the list that the legendary academic editor Bill Germano had worked on in the 90s. And so having the opportunity to sometimes when I was trying to track down a, a permissions issue in the old files and finding, you know, a typewritten letter between Bill Germano and Judith Butler uh, was really an education just in the sense of how academic editors approach their work. So I worked in media and cultural studies, and then my first acquisitions experience, I was actually working across a couple of different fields, uh, philosophy, religion, and linguistics. Um, And when the previous History of the Americas editor at Routledge left uh, for a position at Rutgers University Press, I took over that role and really found that I enjoyed working with historians. Um, you know, I think that they're the way in which the field of history, I think, can reveal some of the kind of contemporary concerns that we all share is really, really fascinating. I think that historians have kind of a special purchase on that. So yes, I was I was working on History of the Americas books at Routledge for a couple of years and that was primarily focused on textbooks um, and more kind of reference products. And when I made the move to Stanford, you know, I had been interested in seeing what things were like in the university press world after being at a commercial academic press for quite some time. I was still talking to many of the same people, but my remit now at Stanford is is fairly broad. So, you know, I work across history of the Americas, European history, world history, Latin American history history of the Pacific world. Our other editors in Asian studies and Middle East studies focus on our Asian history and Middle East history lists. But, um, you know, having that kind of latitude, especially to to talk to scholars who are doing work that is more transnational or global in nature, and being able to kind of also see the way that certain methodologies or thematic approaches are kind of shared across 
regional or time periods in the different subfields of history is is really fascinating to me. But I think, you know, the fact that I have worked in fields outside of history too does let me gives me something of a perspective um and you know as you mentioned my own background is in comparative literature so being able to to learn from people who are experts in their field is something that i think for an editor can be really useful to be able to ask questions and 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 make sure that the authors who we're working with are able to explain their research in a way that people who don't necessarily have a deep background in the subject are going to be able to get their head around. Um, I think, you know, the role of an editor is not to be an expert on the subject matter, but to really act, I think, as a guide to an author in terms of navigating how best to convey that information to a reader and to to think about the narrative, to think about the writing, to think about how the work is going to be received by by the audience. Um, and I think that you know you can bring that kind of skill set from different subject areas across. And um, and in fact, I mean, I think it's really exciting to to get to learn about new areas that I have never been familiar with before. I think you know one of the most fascinating subject areas that I have worked on was actually. When I worked on linguistics books, the field of variationist sociolinguistics, um, which looks at kind of language change and, and language difference between different demographic groups, is is such a fascinating area and one that I now you know think of all the time, but never would have really known about if not for having the opportunity to to work on those books. Yeah, I think I think I'm capable of being interested in almost any field as long as there aren't <laughs> equations. I think when there are equations, I really that's my my limits. Um, but mm-hmm. I no, I entirely agree about that sort of, you know, informed, open-minded curiosity. But having you know, having said what you've just said about your remit being so you know potentially so broad, how do you then within it sort of decide where you're going to you know place the emphases, where you're going to direct your attention? Because it, you know you could be pulled in so many different directions, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely the challenge. And I think, especially, you know, when one is being kind of intellectually omnivorous, there are so many ways in which your attention is pulled in different directions. But I think, you know, one of the things to think about is, what what am I building with in terms of the, the backlist of the press that I'm at? And, and also, you know, what do the, the resources at the press that I'm at how are those going to be able to best serve the books that we're publishing? And so, you know, that has to do with what are we publishing on adjacent lists that's going to create some some synergy. And I think, you know, something that we've we've been thinking about quite a lot too is what makes Stanford Stanford. And so one of the areas that I've been trying to develop here at the press is more of a focus on uh, history of the American West. And obviously, I think Stanford as an institution plays an incredibly important role, especially thinking about the history of technology, thinking about the history of industry in the American West. Um, you know, a few years ago, we published a book about the Chinese railroad workers, which are, you know, that that story is integral to the founding of Stanford University. And so I think finding those sorts of topics that, that makes sense, um, given... The way that Stanford kind of exists in the cultural imaginary is, is something that we've been thinking about. And, you know, also, I think one of the one of the jobs of an acquisitions editor, too, is to 
be a little bit of a prognosticator. And, you know, the, the books that we're beginning to talk to people about right now are not actually going to be coming out into the world for another couple of years, at least. I mean, there are some projects that I have been working on with folks for, you know, three, four, five years. Um, and by the time the book comes out in the world, we, we want to make sure that it is going to be speaking to the concerns of the day. And so, you know, I'm always talking to people, especially early career people, to, to kind of get a sense of what are you excited about? What kinds of trends do you see moving the field forward? Because I think those ideas and methodologies um, and approaches that are defining the way that the field is moving forward, that's where where we want to be so that when, when we're publishing books a couple of years out from now, it really speaks to the state of the field. I think if we had a, a crystal ball to be able to say what's going to be happening in the world 18 months from now, let's publish a book that has something to do with that, you know, we'd, we'd all be incredible at our jobs, but... Yes, we're probably all a little bit trepidatious about what the answer to that question might be, I guess, after, <laughs> after 2020. As well as commissioning in history, you also acquire books in, in Jew studies. Can you tell me a little bit about what sort of books you're looking for there? Yeah, absolutely. And so we have a very long standing series in Jewish studies. I'm I'm delighted to say that a, a number of our books were recently winners and finalists in the National Jewish Book Awards. And that's one of the areas I think where having the synergy between different areas at the press is so crucial. We have a very, very strong Middle East studies list. And I think that absolutely gives us a leg up in terms of attracting really excellent projects where authors whose academic home may be in Jewish studies, but really want their book to be visible to people working in Middle East studies, or even, you know, with uh, a recent book that we published about Sephardic Jews in Mexico to, to have their book visible to a Latin American studies audience, you know, having visibility in those various areas, I think, is also really part of thinking about, are we going to be able to do right by this book in terms of making sure that it's visible to the readers to whom it's going to be most relevant? Margo, you, um, you mentioned a moment ago, the resources the press has in order to publish books well. And I mentioned in our correspondence um, before we met today that I I didn't want to let the funding question about Stanford sort of dominate our our talk, but I felt it would be sort of disingenuous not to to mention it at all. And I, I guess people listening to this will know that 2019 was a sort of year where there was a sort of crisis question about the funding of the press and they can go and and read more about it if they want to sort of see the detail. But do you think sort of broadening that that point out more widely, because you're talking about, you know, the place of Stanford in the sort of cultural imaginary, do you think the problems that Stanford University Press experienced in 2019 sort of speak to a, a wider issue about how culture and also parent institutions evaluate what university presses do, you know, how they value them, and whether there might be, you know, in some cases, a misunderstanding about actually the nature of the the role they fulfill. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked about that. And, you know, I do want to say that at at this point in time, we have a, a firm commitment to funding from the institution. And I think that 
the the funding uh, kerfluffle does feel like it's in the rearview mirror for us now, luckily. Um, and you know, I I think in many ways we're actually Stanford press is in a stronger position now, especially given that all of the attention focused on this moment uh, did raise the visibility of the press and I think, you know, gave us an opportunity to really see the degree of support that we have from Stanford faculty and also from authors and readers beyond Stanford's community. Um, And so I think having that very concrete experience of of support for what we do was actually really encouraging in a lot of ways Um, and I think was an opportunity to actually celebrate the importance of the work that university presses do. You know, your your listeners may know that at the moment the University Press of Kansas is is facing some potential changes. I don't know anything about the specifics of the situation there, but I you know I do think that the reason for the existence of university presses is to publish books that are not always going to be profitable. Uh, You know, we are mission-driven presses. We are not revenue centers for our parent institutions. And we are involved in the incredibly important work of the broader university of disseminating knowledge. And, you know, I think increasingly in my conversations with authors and with editors at other presses, I think the, the role of the university press is not static. You know, I think we will continue producing the codex as kind of our our core unit of, uh, you know, knowledge dissemination. Um, and I think that's really important. But I but I also think, you know, in terms of what academics are looking for from university presses, increasingly, you know, I think the university press needs to be involved in helping authors to develop their platforms and and finding ways of sharing their knowledge beyond the academy you know whether that's in book form or whether that is writing op-eds or you know appearing as a speaker or you know writing for non-academic audiences obviously they're already doing that work in the classroom and so i think it's it's so crucial for universities to see the university press as crucial to their mission um you know i think a university press is such an important interface between universities and their publics and so i i think that oftentimes requires a, a degree of financial support every university press is going to have a different model in terms of what sort of you know revenue they are producing and um, whether there's endowment funding. Um, many university presses have, have journal programs. But I think those sorts of details aside, the role of the university press is, is really essential to scholarly communication, which is so core to the role of universities. And so, you know, it's gratifying to see university presses recognized by more mainstream publications, um, to see our authors having opportunities to talk about their work in more public-facing kinds of situations. I'm very optimistic about the future of university presses, and I think we have an important role to play, I think, especially just in the diversity of, of discourse that is being put out into the world, which is, is so incredibly important at this point in time. This may seem a rather naive question, but you talked about producing the Codex, and there you are, you know, more mm-hmm. or less in Silicon Valley. You know, the, the university presses I know are, are located in very old university towns in England. Mm-hmm. Is is that a creative place in terms of what you're doing 
just in the general culture? Is there a bit of a sort of cognitive dissonance producing the the codex in a in a world of of data and clicks and and bits? Had, had or, or does it not? Is that just a sort of outsider's sort of fanciful view of it? How does it how does it feel to you? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I you know I do think um, so. One of the the interesting things happening at Stanford right now is actually the the Silicon Valley archives at Stanford University are kind of being revamped currently in a really exciting way. And that's actually another area that I'm I'm super interested in is uh, history of technology and especially history of computing. There's a lot of really interesting work right now about how you know, some of the the biases that are baked into these algorithms that now govern our lives and how those have these historical roots. So, you know, I think there there is actually kind of a moral imperative for academics and I think for universities like Stanford that are so involved in this kind of... Um, these kinds of new technologies to also be reflecting on the ethics and the, you know, possible sort of, you know, the, the historical roots of what this is doing in the world. I think our work is very much relevant. And I think when I say a codex too, I mean, I, I anticipate that we are definitely going to continue producing physical books. I think it's really important to to have those in the world. But, you know, we are also very much uh, involved in making sure that our books are available through all of the various different ebook channels right now. And, you know, that kind of back end of the way that ebooks are disseminated through different platforms, um, it's sort of invisible and it's it's incredibly complex, but I think those sorts of developments are enabling us to to make sure that our books are as widely accessible as possible. And, and I think that can only be a good thing. So my final two questions, penultimate one is, tell me about a Stanford book that you feel passionately about. Doesn't have to be your favorite of all Stanford books ever, but just one that you sort of, that really sort of resonates with you. Well, it's always difficult to to answer this question, um, but I think you know one of one of the books that I'm proudest of, and one of the books that I think I see making a huge impact, is sort of untraditional American history textbook that we published now a few years ago called The American Yop. And the word yop comes from a Walt Whitman poem. And this is a textbook that is intended for the U.S. History Survey. And what's special about it is that it actually originated as a massively collaborative project with more than 300 historians contributing their expertise. And the full text is available for free online. So this was actually a project that was already underway. And I, I had actually been in touch with the editors of the project, Ben Wright and, and Joe Locke, in my previous job at Routledge. And when I came to Stanford and was talking to my colleagues about the, the possibilities for our digital publishing program, uh, it came up that we had there had been some conversations with the editors about whether there was a possible collaboration here. So I really jumped at the opportunity to be involved with making this text more widely available and also giving it the scholarly imprimatur of, of coming from a university press. And so, you know, we did a formal peer review of this collaboratively written text and uh, had it professionally copy edited and made it available in print. Um, so there are print copies available for sale, while the online version 
continues to be available for free. Um, and, you know, I think this is the kind of experiment that I would not have gotten away with at a you know, a, a for-profit press. But it really, in terms of the, the print sales, I've been surprised by how incredibly well it has actually sold. And, and obviously sales are just, you know, one criteria of, of a book's reach. Um, but it's been really gratifying to, to see a book that is intended for courses have just that kind of impact. Um, and I think also, you know, the, the ethos of the book really is to think about American history as an incredibly complex and, you know, nuanced topic. And so, you know, especially when we recently were just hearing about uh, the previous president's commission on American history and uh, the way in, in which that becomes a battleground for the culture wars of the day, I think putting out a textbook that that has so many historians standing behind it uh, has been a really remarkable contribution. I shall definitely go and take a look after this. And if I, if I ask you in conclusion, if you were to suggest a title or a series or a list from another press that you admire, does anything come to mind? This is also such a tricky one. And I, I was thinking about this ahead of time and, it, and it's, it is so difficult to single anyone out. But I will say, you know, I consistently see such excellent books coming from the Justice, Power and Politics series out of the University of North Carolina Press. And they really, you know, they're publishing excellent scholars, many of them early career scholars, looking at really complex issues. Um, so I certainly encourage you and your listeners to, to check out that series if you're not already familiar with it. I was talking to Margaret Irvin of Stanford University Press. You'll find SUP's catalogue for spring summer 21 on their website, sup.org. And I'm very much hoping to feature an interview with one of their authors here before long. If you work in academic publishing and would be interested in talking about your job on the podcast, do get in touch via the Hedgehog and Fox website. Don't be shy. On the website, you'll also find links to over 70 more episodes of the programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, Google and Spotify, among others. And catch up on any interviews you've missed. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.